0: Hey, 26ers, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Dr. Lena Green. Dr. Green is a clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and fatherhood practitioner. She has served in New York City government for 18 years and is currently an adjunct professor at NYU, where she earned both a master's degree and a doctorate. Needless to say, Dr. Green is accomplished and has the credentials that should automatically garner respect in most circles. But like many people of color, she has had to command that respect over the course of her journey. Yet, like a true 26er, she's doing great work despite the challenges. In addition to her professional roles in government and academia, she is a lactation consultant and the founder and executive director of the Akira Center, a free social services program focusing on fatherhood, healthy relationships, and mental health. During our chat, we walk through Dr. Green's journey into this field, her experience as a female practitioner exploring men's issues, and of course, what has become a reoccurring theme on the show, why therapy is something we all can benefit from. So without further ado, take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Dr. Green. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am great. I am super excited. Thank you so much for having me today. And you've got like this positive energy just radiating (laughs) off of you, which is great because that always makes for a wonderful conversation. So very excited to have you. Same. So before we jump in, uh, we've had some production challenges this morning, which we're just going to talk about (laughs) uh, on the recording, because why not? So we're in space today um, and there is construction going on right outside (laughs) door where we're recording. So might hear some hammering in the background, might hear some drilling. We really don't know yet. We're going to see what what happens. But we we try to keep it 100 with our our listeners because we're out here trying to be extraordinary on an ordinary day, just like everybody else. So thank you for being so accommodating and, and patient as we work through these obstacles. Absolutely. So anyway, tell us, who is Dr. Green?
1: Well, uh, Dr. Green is a licensed mental health clinician, a clinical social worker to be exact. Um, I'm a psychotherapist. I am a professor. I'm a fatherhood practitioner. Um, and then my family will tell you that I am a wonderful granddaughter, niece, and an extraordinary
0: auntie. See, that auntie <laughs> role, people really try to minimize that. Listen. We, we, we play a critical role in the development of of these youngins. I'm just saying.
1: Absolutely. I put in hard work. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. They, You know, I'm not an auntie biologically because DeMarcus mm-hmm. is not on that train yet. Um, however, you know, I have a few adopted nieces and nephews and they get my money. Yes. You know, they get my time. You know yes. how it goes for sure.
1: Absolutely. It, it takes a village and it is definitely a community effort. For
0: sure. So let's talk about your, your work um, because I do know Some therapists, and I do know some social workers, and I am aware how difficult that work can be. Um, So, what drew you to the field? Yeah. So
1: I feel like um, this particular field is definitely a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are many people who start out in the role, um, but don't necessarily have a longevity, have longevity in, in, the, in, in practice. Um, so what drew me to the to the field specifically, um, I was out of work um, shortly after uh, my undergraduate career and I decided to volunteer um, at a place called the Upper Manhattan Mental Health Center in Harlem. And uh, they asked me if I could, you know, volunteer two days a week. So I decided to go ahead and do that. Um, and I was working with all these incredible mental health clinicians. Um, at that time, I was working with a small group of um, five or six boys um, who were both Black and Latino who were diagnosed with oppositional defiant mm. disorder. And um, that's a very challenging thing because they have, uh, you know, difficulty with authority. And so um, I remember sitting in a, in, a, um, in a conference when we were case conferencing, which is what most mental health clinicians do when they're talking about challenging cases. Um, and I thought for the, for the first couple of months, that I was sitting in a room full of psychologists and it turns out that they were not. They were all social workers. Um, so on that team, we had one social, we had uh, one psychologist, one psychiatrist and about 15 social workers and other licensed mental health clinicians at the time. Um, and so I talked to them about what I was interested in doing and ultimately being becoming a psychotherapist and wanting to have my own private practice. And then my interest in social work was was born. So that is sort of how I came into the, to the field. Um, and then I'm dating myself a little bit here, but um, I... You know, started my my graduate career at uh, NYU in 2001 Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, gave
0: birth to a new life there. So what I find interesting about that is you were having difficulty finding paid work. Yes. But you volunteered. Yes. So for me, I mean, I've been in situations where trying to figure out career and and, and generally the last thing on your mind is giving back Mm -hmm. without compensation because you're trying to figure out how to shore up your own future. Mm -hmm. So What drew you to the opportunity, even though things were a bit unsettled for you professionally?
1: Yeah. So, um, I grew up in a, in a, in a family where giving back was always part of the agenda. Um, so whether it was in a political space or, you know, a soup kitchen or something like that, passing out flyers for elected officials or, you know, rallying folks to get out the vote. Um, and so I found myself initially when, when I didn't have any work, um, feeling a little on the depressed side. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I remember talking to one of my mentors and they suggested that, that I, you know, think about what it is that I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I had an interest in the area of mental health and, 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 you know, just therapy in some way, shape or form, and that I find a place to go ahead and do that. Um, and I actually knocked on a few doors um, before um, I got a yes. Mm-hmm. So, I was you know, sort of fresh out of college, one or two jobs. Um, and so someone just said, yes, you know, come on, come on in and join us. We'd love to have you. And, you know, that that was sort of it. So I think um, a lot of times we underestimate how giving back and sharing ourselves with others can really have um, an impact on us positively. For so.
0: sure. So. Once you had that light bulb moment where you're like, this is what I want to want to do, what was the next step for you?
1: Um, so the next step was applying to grad school. So I literally turned in my application um, the day that it was due. I hand delivered deliver my application. Oh, you didn't even mail it. You were like, <laughs> let me go drop this off. Yes. So it was like I was sort of wavering back and forth whether or not just the time was right. Could I afford it? Um, and at the time, you know, I had a good friend um, and he was like, listen, let's let's just do it. And so we did. Um, and so I walked myself down there, turned in my application. And a couple of weeks later, they said, congratulations, you're in. Um, and then I started my first year as an MSW student.
0: This was at NYU. Is that NYU, yeah. correct. So NYU is nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> how long did you work on this application since you were wavering? I mm-hmm. mean, how much time? Because, you know, p- you hear people uh, talk about how they pore over every line mm-hmm. and every detail and spend months working on it. How long did you have once you decided, OK, I'm definitely doing this?
1: Probably about two weeks. So
0: you pulled it together quickly. I did.
1: So what's interesting about pulling it together in two weeks is that um, I already had people who I knew would support me. OK. Right. Um, so I talked about mentor a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a cadre of mentors um, in several different fields um, um, of academia in particular. Um, and so that's always been a, a, a practice of mine. And so when it was time to put in the application, you know, you send your foot, you ask your folks and they say, of course. Mm-hmm. And so it was a quick turnaround. So I'm grateful. I thank God that it was a quick turnaround sure. for that. Um, and then also something about timing, right? So like when it's your time, it's your time. So I'll just tell a short, quick a, a quick story around that. Um, when I first applied for um, um, my doctorate. I applied at another, another university, which shall remain named. Nice. OK. Um, and I spent a lot of time putting my application. Um, I had to do a group interview and then an individual interview. And then I got waitlisted mm-hmm. slash rejected, essentially. Right? right. They told me I could start mm-hmm. Um And so I was really crushed and devastated at that time because I'd put so much work and I'd worked so hard for it. Um, and so fast forward, you know, two years later um, when I decided to, you know, try again um, for my doctorate, mm-hmm. um, the process was so smooth and so easy that I almost couldn't believe it. So I feel like sometimes when things are so difficult and so challenging, that may not be your time. Um, but when things seem to sort of go, well, at least in my experience, mm-hmm. when things go really smoothly and really well, um, I could tell that sort of, you know, the universe says yes and it's calling at this time.
0: So I want to touch on that for a bit since you brought it up, because I think sometimes people have a hard time, especially when they're in a state of despair, um, figuring out when Things are indicators that it's not the right time mm-hmm. versus when it's an opportunity to really push through in spite of the adversity in your own life. How have you worked to sort of have discernment about whether it's one or the other? hmm.
1: That's a great question. Um, I think it takes a lot of prayer, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of patience with yourself and flexibility with yourself um, and also honesty. Mm -hmm. Right. So am I in a a position um, to do this at this point in time? Um, But also trusting that um, that whatever is inside of you has uh, a time where where you're supposed to sort of give birth to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that's not to say that, you know, folks shouldn't just you know, try because I believe that everyone should try. Um, what You know, every, we all have a passion or something that is burning inside of us that is yearning to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do believe in encouraging folks to try it, even if it doesn't work right, because there there are lessons and um, lesson learns and uh, touch a ton of education in the failures. Um, but knowing when it is your time. Right. So for me, it's it's I meditate a lot. I pray a lot. And I don't always necessarily talk to other people because mm-hmm. sometimes pe- folks can talk us out of something. Oh, stuff, for sure. Right. So we want to be mindful about who we share that information with. Um, But if you have some trusted folks to, you know, some people who can encourage you, um, who can pray with you, pray for you um, and certainly do that for yourself. So
0: that has worked Mm -hmm. in my experience. And one of the things that I personally have realized in my own life is that once you've done the work to really get in tune with yourself um, and become grounded, I feel like I generally know that the thing that feels the most uncomfortable mm-hmm. is probably what I need to be doing. Oh, yes, right. Because human nature is we we gravitate towards comfort. Yes. So many of us are overachievers who have been trained and conditioned to push. No matter what, mm-hmm. like no matter what is going on, I gotta push through, even when every all the signs are saying this is not the right thing for mm-hmm. you or it's not the right time. So in that instance, it can be hard to just kind of exercise surrender and say, yeah. I'm gonna just take a step back because this is not working right now. I believe it's for me, um, but the path has not yet been made clear mm-hmm. or clearer for mm-hmm. me to do this. And it can be hard when you're an overachiever, especially to say, I'm just wait, I'm not gonna do this right now. Or on the flip side, people who struggle with diligence and being determined, you know, but mm-hmm. determined at the first sign of of uh, trouble in a situation feeling like, oh, I'm just going to go lie back down mm-hmm. because this is not quite working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they find discomfort in having to, to sort of forge ahead no matter what. So that is often for me like a, a test. And, and it only works for people who really are, have found balance in their lives and are, are grounded. But yeah. the thing that feels like you're being stretched because yes. I believe every in every situation in our lives is meant to stretch us and Absolutely. get us to the people yeah. that we're supposed to be. So those things that come to really stretch us as people and stretch our character, mm-hmm. um, to me, that is generally the direction that, that you should be going in. Definitely. And I would just
1: add one more thing. Mm-hmm. You know, as a as a woman of faith, um, I am reminded that, you know, if God gave it to you, he will provide for, for
0: it. For sure. For right? sure.
1: So we have to trust that process also that, you know, thinking about it in terms of supermarket doors. Right. When you walk into the supermarket, you assume that, it, that the door is going to automatically open. Mm-hmm. And so when we know that something is for us, we have to walk as if those doors will
0: automatically open for us and trusting in and letting our faith lead us. For sure. And just the way God works, it often doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like in the process. So, you know, yeah, yeah, it's trust. It's trusting when it's not packaged, you know, in the way that you anticipated, um, because God has quite a sense of humor in in that regard. Um, So taking it back to you, okay, you've gotten into grad school at at NYU, Mm -hmm. uh, getting into this program. What was your experience getting started? Because personally. And I asked that question because I remember going to law school and I was in a rigorous program, you know, an undergrad, got to law school and expected it to be equally as rigorous, which it was. But I literally was in this bubble with you know, 500 other people mm-hmm. who were just like me. Right. So it it upped the level of competition in a way that we are all very type A, mm-hmm. you know, all have similar goals in, in mind. And just the stress of the environment and the workload, mm-hmm. it knocked me off my foundation a little bit okay. in the beginning. Did you feel that at all? Or were you like, this is what I meant to do. I got this.
1: Yeah, I think um, for for my first couple of years of grad school, mm-hmm. getting my master's, um, definitely, right? Everyone is sort of competing for the same yeah. spots with the same attention. Um, I do have to say, and I'm not sure if you're ready to get there yet, my doctoral experience is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, finding myself competing with folks or thinks th- or folks thinking that I don't belong there yes. because of what I look like. Um, but knowing full well that I'm qualified and capable of being there and then having some support, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, NYU is a predominantly white institution. And so um, there are only a small number of students of color um, and that continues to be the same, you know, today. Sure. Um, But having folks who really have your back and who are really invested in you and Mm -hmm. invested in you doing well, um, not just being there and graduating, but really doing well. For sure. um, Definitely made the difference. Um, And so having some handholding when you needed it, um, having a place to cry when you needed it um, and, you know, being like, okay, here are some tissues. Um, Let's (laughs) Pat these tears yes. and we just let's get back out there for sure. So that definitely helped.
0: So, what was the difference between your graduate experience and mm-hmm. your doctoral program?
1: Um, my doctoral program, you know, they wanted me, mm-hmm. right? So that was the difference. The difference was that, you know, I got a phone call, um, you know, putting in my application and said, you know, we're they're gonna be a couple you know, to be a couple of months before we make any decisions about who will be accepted into this uh, this first cohort. Um so I, I nicknamed my, my cohort, um, the 13 of us, the mm-hmm. pioneers, mm-hmm. Um, since we are the first co- cohort um, of doctoral DSW students at NYU School of Social Work. Um but I got a phone call three weeks after I put in my application and it was from the director of the program and she said I cannot wait. I I need to call you to tell you that you are accepted into this program. We are excited to have you and we can't wait to receive you when you get here. Wow. Um, so that was a big, a big difference. Um, and then when I got there, right, you know, you are on a new level of education. You're like, oh, man, I thought I could write. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> you know, you get these papers back and you're like, oh, Um these, you know, eight 900 level courses that I thought I was, you know, shining in doesn't feel like I'm <laughs> yeah. such a shiner anymore. But, it, you know, it's inc- incredibly rigorous. Um, but again, the level of support that is there mm-hmm. um, and having people who are absolutely in your corner who will fight for you. Um, so particularly as my topic for dissertation um, was focused on uh, men of color. Okay. Um, and so a lot of times I know speaking to my other friends and other at other universities, um, they get a lot of pushback around that, around focusing on, you know, sort of our people or focusing on something that feels, you know, like a very small lane. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: but, you know, there were sort of cheerleaders every step of the way. Um, and so I'm forever grateful for that.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about what your focus was within the context of men of color for your dissertation?
1: Sure. So my focus is on is on fathers, was on fathers and continues to be on fathers, um, particularly the experience of um, young fathers of color. So um, Black and Latino fathers, teen fathers. So that was sort of one portion. Um, and then the other portion was focusing on uh, paternal depression during the perinatal period. So what that means is um, new and expectant dads um, during pregnancy all the way up until the child's like first or second birthday. Um, so what are their experiences? Um, what are their, you know, what are their um, mental health experiences as, as well? Um, What are they at risk for and how do they become at risk for those things? Um, And then understanding the marginalization that um, young fathers or teen fathers face um, specifically around stigma, um, around education um, and financially as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some social emotional stuff that comes along with that as well.
0: So I I find the term paternal depression Mm -hmm. like that's new for me. Right. So that's startling because that's all you ever hear about is postpartum. You know, the mom, you got to be careful because this could happen this could happen. You could have this psychological or emotional experience. No one really talks about it within the mainstream space, you know, about paternal depression. So what are the triggers there that could lead to that?
1: Yeah. So um, the triggers include some of the same things that we look at with regard to to women and moms. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, if there's a history of depression there or anxiety, um, some underlying mental health issues there, um, the amount of stress that comes along with becoming a new parent, um, is the parent ready? Right. Mm-hmm. So surprisingly, um, you know, most people um, don't plan for their first pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so for many, it is a surprise um, for the first one. And so, you know, are you ready um, mm-hmm. and what are the potential um you know, stresses that come along with that. Um, you know, for fathers um, of color in particular, you know, with Black men leading the pack, um, we tend to have um, children outside of non-marital relationships. Mm-hmm. And so that also brings another level of stress that I don't think people necessarily prepare for. And so it's looking at all of those things and how they impact your ability to parent. Um, in addition to, you know, co-parenting, how does that impact when you're inside of the home and both outside of the home? So, and there are some other terms that I could get into if you wish, but that's sort of it on a on the mm-hmm. simple terms.
0: Sure. So, you know, we hear um, the narrative about many fathers leaving, Mm -hmm. just not being present from the beginning and Mm -hmm. there's always this conversation of like how can you just leave your child Mm -hmm. and you know we chalk it up often to this person is just quote deadbeat Mm -hmm. um they don't care it's because they didn't give birth to the child that it's easy for them to leave Mm -hmm. because they're not attached in the same way but do you think uh paternal depression and maybe that not being recognized and addressed can lead to this escapist approach to fatherhood
1: yes absolutely right Mm -hmm. so I want to just sort of unpack that because that was a that was big um Mm -hmm. I want to help people understand that a little bit. So in America, there are 19.7 million father absent homes. Right. So that's one in four children mm-hmm. in America. Um, and again, going back to the, the fact that, you know, black and Latino men um, for the, for us, though, you know, we take up a large bulk of that number um, because of non-marital um, births. Um, but, you know, the depression is one part of it. The other part is that people have a really difficult time co-parenting. Right. So they are all in for the child, but we haven't taught them, right, necessarily how to parent. That so doesn't necessarily come with a toolkit. And for moms, they get a lot more support around that um, from the time that they find out that they are pregnant, when they're preparing for the baby for classes and all of that. Right. Men don't necessarily have those things. Um, and then if we start to think about um, those men and their own experiences in father absent homes. Right. They don't have models for what that looks right. like. Right. So that also brings some anxiety and stress. Um, and so coupled with all of those things, in addition to a phenomenon called maternal gatekeeping, right? Mm. And that is about power and control between mom, between parents, right? I'm going to use mom and dad right now for this example, recognizing that there are other sure. uh, dynamics around parenting and same-sex uh, households and all of that. And so what happens there is that the child is often used as a pawn uh, between uh, you know, mom and dad, and there are tons of issues that come along with that. Um, and so the, some of it can be manipulative, some of it can be punishing. Um, a lot of times there's the child support system that enters the picture, mm-hmm. right, and can act as um, almost another parent, if you will, right, mitigating the circumstances between parents. So there are a lot of things that we don't get a chance to talk about or really think about before we get to those next steps. So all of those things are contributing factors to, um, you know, the demise uh, of a relationship.
0: And I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I feel like it's going to tie back into your experience and the work that you do now, um, because we hear these dialogues uh, between Black Men and black women. Mm-hmm. I have these dialogues in my personal life sure. with you know friends who are single, you know, raising children alone, mm-hmm. um, and sort of grouping all the men who are not present mm-hmm. <laughs> into mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. definition or stereotype, mm-hmm. and hearing black men in particular talking about single moms in a way that is not always positive, sure, because of the the child support, you know, family court, mm-hmm. and, and all of those things. How do we start to have healthier interaction and healthy, healthy more? healthy dialogue Mm -hmm. as a people around these topics?
1: I think part of what would help us in that is thinking about putting the child first. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we don't we don't think about that. Um, and understanding that, um, you know, children personalize many things um, and that we want we actually want children to have a healthy attachment to both mom and dad. Right. Um, and a healthy co-parenting environment, barring any uh, issues around violence or safety or domestic violence concerns. Um, and so if we start with a child first attitude, mm-hmm. I think we can really start to, you know, see ourselves through a different lens. Um you know, what am am I doing? What's healthy or what's in the best interest of my child? Right. Um, recognizing also that both parents have a right to the child mm-hmm. um, and respecting one another as parents. Right. So we sort of take a step back because I think a lot of times people are coming, you know, with a lot of uh Intense emotions sure. to the table um, and then helping. So what a part of what I do is help people sort of unpack that. Right. So once they get past sort of the emotion of it all, right. Thinking about some of the practicalities that come along with parenting um, with someone who you are no longer romantically involved with.
0: Mm-hmm. So. so going back to your academic and professional trajectory, you work on this dis- dissertation, mm-hmm. of course, obviously successfully defend um, and, and you become. Dr. Lena Green, mm-hmm. you do a lot of things, which I, you know, <laughs> I want to get into. Um, okay. And you and you play a lot of roles, yep. but I, I think those of us who are not in the space think okay if if someone is involved in you know social work has a doctorate these things are either going to teach mm-hmm. or they're going to be a therapist like private practice mm-hmm. um, and I know you do teach and you are actively uh, counseling other people as <laughs> yes. well but did you have a view when you first got out of like this is exactly what I want my career to look like
1: mm-hmm. yeah I think I did uh, paint a picture for mm-hmm. myself of what, th- what I wanted it to look like um, I knew that academia and teaching would always be a part of that picture mm-hmm. um, and you know, to be clear, you don't have to have a doctorate to, right. to teach, right? There are plenty of adjunct professors who um, have a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. or a master's degree that are teaching. Um, but I think when you start to, to get on a certain level and teaching master's level students or doctoral level students, you know, that that definitely requires another level of education. Um, so that's one part. Um, I also work full time and I work for the for city government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work in the area of substance use, um, planning and monitoring. So and policy, some 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 policy, some small stuff and policy. Um, and also, um the Akira Center. So sure. that is sort of um the place that I think sort of um has helped to ground me in a lot of the work that I've that I've done um and the things that I'd like to continue to do moving forward with as it relates to working with fathers and families.
0: So let's let's unpack all three of those things. Okay. That's that's many hats that okay. you are wearing. <laughs> so what is your focus as a professor at this juncture?
1: Yeah so right now my focus as a professor is teaching master's level um, social work students mm-hmm. um in field practice in field and um and in, in the internship, so my my job is to help them understand what it means to be a social worker, help them to have a better understanding, or come into start to come into their understanding of having a social work identity, mm-hmm. what that means, um, and all its flexibility. <laughs> um, I am also responsible for making sure that they have, well, somewhat responsible for making sure that they have a successful field or internship placement that they that they usually um, are at for an entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of their education. So they're sort of their training about around becoming a therapist on the ground. Um, and so they're placed in various agencies throughout the city. So anywhere from administration to policy to, you know, hospital work. Um, so that's across the board. Um, and then teaching them about the different modalities, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to be a therapist. What does that mean? Um, and what does that look like? Uh, so that's sort of my role.
0: So you're doing that and then you have a job within government, which... When I hear the word government, I just hear red tape and bureaucracy. And I'm wondering how that jives with the work that you do. But talk a little bit about that full time role.
1: Yeah. So um, I've actually been in government for 18 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I started working at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, um, working with um, crime victims and witnesses um, there for about six years. um, And then moving on to the Department of Health, where I spent nearly nine years Mm -hmm. focusing on parent child health, um, And now I work at uh, um, for HRA, um, which is the Human Resources Administration Mm -hmm. for New York City. So everything that is from child support to food stamps is in my office. Um, And I'm responsible for the um, Division of um, Substance Use Policy and Planning. OK. So sort of what I do there.
0: So you clearly have the goods in terms of knowledge and credentials. Um, Do you feel that people intentionally or unintentionally uh try to minimize your acumen or you know your title
1: uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, that there are folks who um do respect who I am quite a, quite a bit, especially knowing you know my background where I come from. Um, and academically mostly. Um, but then there are people who are who intentionally right um try to sort of discount my expertise, um, discount my credentials, uh, calling by my first name without permission, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so um, you know, I do have to think strategically about how I engage with those folks because these are the people that I have to sit with every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I. I am clear about who I am. Um, I am intentional about, you know, engaging folks and giving them permission or, or sharing with them how I like to be addressed. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's my responsibility to do that um, and and finding ways to, you know, push back mm-hmm. um, and set a healthy boundary in a respectful way when I feel
0: like it's not honored. There was a clip floating around recently. I don't know if you saw it uh, with Dr. Maya Angelou was, you know, on <laughs> some panel or yes. something and a young woman got up and called her by her first name yes. and she shut that down immediately. immediately. Right. <laughs> And I was reading some of the comments on it. Mm -hmm. And most of us who sort of grew up in an environment where you give your elders a a certain level of respect Mm -hmm. were like, we're not surprised that happened. But there were many people who thought um, that she was very harsh in Mm -hmm. the way that she responded to the young woman. Mm -hmm. Or was that the the time and and space for that? Mm -hmm. And particularly as, as Black women, I think often we are tasked with inhibiting our own reaction to something for the mm-hmm. sake of somebody else's feelings. Um, so you've been wronged in some way or disrespected. But if you respond, that person somehow, the offender somehow becomes the victim. Correct. Right. Do you ever feel like you have to hamper really c- calling people on their on their nonsense for the sake of keeping the peace? Um,
1: I do. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to pay attention to um you know the sort of the histories around um, how we've been disrespected, particularly in this country, mm-hmm. right? And so I think in the in that clip with, with um, Dr. Myangelo, you know, there were a couple of dynamics that were at play there. Certainly, age was one of them, um, right? And then also giving the respect of the title mm-hmm. is too. And so. Yeah, I think, you know, I am I try to think about, you know, is this is this the appropriate time? Um, but I think, you know, starting at a place um, and, and how I introduce myself initially helps with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't have a problem correcting folks. Right. Right. So when we're hanging out and we're doing, you know, we're doing things and it's a, we're in a casual space. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I don't we don't have to use my title we're not, when we are at work or we're doing right. something that's work related. Right. Um, I deserve that respect. And so does everyone else um, who's who's come to a place in their life where they've garnered um such respect so
0: yeah a lot of work and effort goes into earning that title.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so and a lot, of things, a lot of things that you will never know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we just see sort of on the surface. We don't know all that went into that. So absolutely. Yeah, you're correct.
0: OK, so I want to talk about the Akira Center, which oh. I find incredibly exciting. Um, can you speak to what that is and, and your involvement there?
1: Yeah. So I'm the executive director and the founder of the Akira Center. Um, it is a free um, service that um, I started out in two. 2012, um, it actually began as a partnership um, with my church, mm-hmm. um, asking for f- free space um, because of all the things that I was sort of seeing in the community, right? So working in spaces, um, doing some consulting and figuring out that, you know, dads um, need a space as well, that it, that they can just call their own. They need a safe space. They need a place where they can access mental health, um, where they can access knowledge, resources and also get some advocacy. Um, and so I received a yes um, about getting space and partnering with my church to do that at the Dream Center over in Harlem. And um, there we, you know, I'm no longer doing that work in the same capacity, um, but there we started out running um, fatherhood groups on a weekly basis um, and having four mental health clinicians on staff with various uh, areas of expertise um, that could sort of be on hand to support dads. So we did, um, we'd we'd run a group for about an hour and a half. um, And prior to that, we would let folks um, come in who needed one-on-one sessions to talk a little bit about their cases. Um, During that time, we also screened every dad that came in for a depression and also Mm -hmm. had a better understanding of what their household composition looked like. So we wanted to know if um, they were living at home, if they were married, if they were separated, widowed, all of that, how many children they had. Um, And if those children were with what we call multi-fertility partners. Mm. Um, I love these clinical terms. (laughs) Right, because we want to understand some of the dynamics that are happening to help, um, you know, lead and support them and guide them um, in in the appropriate way. Um, So we've been doing that work, like I said, since 2012. um, And then we've shifted into other spaces. So doing um, daddy and me groups, um, doing huge daddy me events. Um, and then the last event that I just did was a um, celebration of fatherhood couples edition, which focused on black love. So we celebrated 18 um, black and Latino couples um, in Harlem. And that was about two weeks ago.
0: So that all is amazing work, by the way. And I know people will listen to these things and and think like, I want to make an impact Mm -hmm. in this way. But anybody who's tried to do anything to this magnitude in Mm -hmm. terms of giving back and serving knows that there are some very real Logistics um, that yes. go into it. So you mentioned the church, and that's how you got your, your start. How have you been able to sustain this, just from a sub, you know a subsidy standpoint or mm-hmm. financial implications?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, we have some very generous um, supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know partnerships are key. So this is not work that I'm doing alone. I'm certainly doing some consulting work as well. So initially, when I first started out, um, I actually was just going around and consulting for various organizations because they needed someone who had fatherhood expertise mm-hmm. um, to come in and work. With either, um, you know, fathers who had a custodial agreement um, or non-custodial agreement, excuse me, with the Office of Child Support, so part of their. Um uh, you know, they were sort of mandated to some kind of treatment. So I sort of went in and did some of that work. Um, so I would just say, you know, don't be afraid to start start small, you know, never begrudge humble beginnings, um, but also think about how partnerships can help you leverage what it is that you're trying to do. Because so many other people have platforms and might not necessarily be the exact same thing that you're doing, or sometimes it is, and mm-hmm. that's okay. Um, but thinking about, you know, what communities are out there that you can learn from um, and that you can tag team on.
0: Did you ever feel like either from your peers in the profession or the people that you serve that there was doubt about how you as a woman Mm. can service uh, men. And particularly men of color. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: absolutely. So there, there's a picture that I like to show um, when this question comes up. Um, so there are there are like seven very large guys um, and me smack dab in the middle, right? <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, I was actually moderating a, a child support conference, um, which I'll be doing again in October. Um, but uh, a lot of times people will, you know, discredit me or discount me or don't think that I have anything worthy to share, mm-hmm. specifically because I am a woman. Right. Um, so there are many a times when I'm trying, you know, I could sort of be in a group or in a circle and folks are asking questions and I'll attempt to ask a question will be cut off wow. because someone thinks that they don't want to hear from me, you know, or and I said think because mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't know who I am. And so right. um, they sort of count me out early on. Um, but, you know, and instead of trying to sort of fight for space or fight to remind folks who I am, you know, I just sit in sit in, um, you know, my own promise and being clear that um, that I, that this work chose me, I didn't necessarily choose this work um, and that when the time is right um, that, you know, whatever it is that I need to share or say um, will come to pass. So.
0: So in the space that is really, for lack of a better better word, heavy um, and probably takes a lot out of you. How do you keep yourself emotionally healthy? Mm -hmm. How do you avoid taking all that in taking all that on? Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Well, I work out when I can. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I do a lot of prayer. I do a lot of meditation. Um, I have a therapist as well. Um, And then I have some really incredible mentors. Um, So I work with several psychologists um, and psychiatrists who are um, some are close friends. Some are just mentors. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm able to sort of bring some of these challenges that I have have uh to the table and we're able to talk those things out because you know again it is a lot of stuff right Right. um and many of it uh much of it is is also spiritual so people don't sort of think about it in that way um but i do because of the you know because i've been doing this work for a really long time so knowing that i have my own system of support um that i can turn to when i need to um or when i'm stuck right so as much knowledge and expertise that i have right we, we all get stuck and need support and need help and sort of um moving through particular pathways um So that's the one thing that I would say that um, for anyone doing this work, you know, get you some really strong folks in your corner who will support you um, and who will love you and who will check you Mm -hmm. as well when when they need to.
0: So I I want to talk about mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly within the context of black men, Um, because ironically, I was watching the documentary, the four part documentary series on Wu-Tang Clan Mm -hmm. on Showtime, and they spent a lot of time. Sort of walking through their story of, of how they grew up and the things that they saw mm-hmm. and the things that they've experienced, mm-hmm. many of which um, were very traumatic, mm-hmm. but only a couple of them actually identified it as that. Mm-hmm. And there was a reference to therapy um in a few different contexts, but one of them being like, you know, we don't go to therapy. Our therapy was the music or mm-hmm. our therapy was the work. Um, our therapy was the community that we had in, in being together. And while I do think we've made progress in that area, do you think that Black men are still the most resistant to getting help as it relates to mental health? Or do you think the stigma really is being lifted at this point?
1: Um, I think that for men, for a Black men, I, th- I, th- I still think they have a difficult time, mm-hmm. um, you know, still is a really huge part of the the, the challenge. Um, Overcoming that, um, overcoming what it means to be weak or be, you know, be strong or what manhood looks like. Um, I know that, you know, the the term floats out now um, that has a lot of popularity, uh, toxic masculinity and all of that stuff. Right. Um, But we also have to also remind ourselves that there there have been some history um, where we haven't necessarily been treated well by the medical profession. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, We also have to remind ourselves about the history, the historical traumas that have happened to us throughout the community. So it's not as if, you know, um, reject, rejecting medical care in some way, shape or form is, is, um, a foreign story to us, right? So we, we've, we've engaged in some care where we haven't necessarily been treated well, right? So we, and we carry sort of those things with us. Um, but, um, while it is gaining momentum and I think people are giving it, um, some credence and, and giving it a try, um, I still think that there remains, you know, a large percentage of folks who will not go to therapy because they think that they can do it on their own. Right. Um, and so for those folks, I would encourage them, you To to try it, right? You've you've tried so many other things, right? So many of uh, my clients will come in or, uh, you know, parents will come to me and say, um, you know, my, you know, this this dad is smoking a lot of marijuana or they are, you know, very aggressive in other ways or they drink a lot. Right. So or, you know, (laughs) you know, suffering from anxiety, all of these things. And I would say to that to that person or to those people, like you've tried so many other things, Mm -hmm. right, to cope with to cope with those those challenges. Why not give it a try?
0: So one of the things that comes up often on social media and in conversations is this idea around Black women sticking with Black men mm-hmm. who quote unquote, don't have it together. And that statement I'm finding causes a very visceral reaction amongst black women. Like we're we're always the ones who are expected to pour out. What is he bringing to the table? Why do I have to stick with this person and invest in them uh, in any way? Why can't they just be ready? Like, why can't they just be equipped to be the man that I need them to be? Why is the, the pressure uh, on us as women? How do we Bridge that gap between the the genders because it does feel like we're not working together. Mm -hmm. It feels, you know, we've used this term on the show before, like the struggle Olympics, like who has it worse (laughs) and who has to make the bigger sacrifice Mm -hmm. for a person that's broken Mm -hmm. or has not yet figured out how to put all the pieces together Mm -hmm. to be a whole human being.
1: It's a tough question, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think um, on some level, you do want to encourage folks to to, to think about um, what is in their best interest, yeah. right? And if you've already made an investment in a relationship. Um, but I would say that you have to think about where your limits are, mm-hmm. right? Um, that you don't have to sacrifice yourself. You don't have to be the sacrificial lamb right. um, for the relationship. And only you know when you have reached, you know, the threshold of mm-hmm. your tolerance, Um you know we have a lot of progress to make it in that area i think um i think on on one side it's about asking people to sacrifice so much um and then on the other side is why do you feel like you need to sacrifice as much as you do um so i i I like to think about those conversations one on one Mm -hmm. um, and really helping people think through sort of where they are and where they've had enough,
0: um, if that makes sense. It does. How do you think um, some of the deficiencies that have that have happened in the home in terms of how we we grew up? And I I mean, I'm a product of an absentee father Mm -hmm. um, as well and, and have thankfully been to therapy to un- unpack that but before therapy is in the picture how does that absenteeism or um, inconsistent relationship with a parent how does that sometimes inform how you approach adult interactions on a relational level it- romantic or mm-hmm. or otherwise mm-hmm.
1: well parents are our first teachers mm-hmm. right so we will always have them as a model for what, for what it looks like um, and so we can either run to or run away from those things um, but they have a huge impact on the on the kind of person that we will choose mm-hmm. Um the kind of relationships um, that romantic relationships and even friendships, right? I think sometimes we don't talk about friendships in those ways. Um, but it informs our trust and it, it informs um, our loyalty, um, it informs our tolerance um for things, including pain, including sacrifice, mm-hmm. including some of those things. Um and I would think, I would I would encourage folks to think about um again, you know, um what 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 do they deserve mm-hmm. in, in those spaces, right? Um and thinking about how do you how do you unpack um the those histories. And some of those histories are traumatic, right? Some of us grew up in very um, traumatic households. Um, And we continue to carry those things with us. Um, And I would say that, you know, even, you know, moving from relationship to relationship, you know, you need some support and some tools to unpack some of those things if you're trying to get to a healthy space. And that won't happen, um, I would say, without um, some good support and some really some good mental health support to help you get there, to be quite honest.
0: So one of the things that I, I want to unpack a little bit for, further that you mentioned is how that those dynamics, the dynamics inform our tolerance for pain because. Often I talk about this just within my circle of friends who have dealt with issues of abandonment Mm -hmm. um, around parents or, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. And it's not always father child, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's mother child. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I find that just in our own anecdotal experience, that manifests the the effects of that in two different ways. Mm -hmm. Either people have an inability to fully attach Mm -hmm. to a situation emotionally or at the first threat of pain or discomfort Mm -hmm. running Mm -hmm. and just saying, you know what? I'm going to end this, you know, before you do. Mm -hmm. So that's on one end of the spectrum. And the other is a level of anxiety around it. So feeling like when someone is not present for them, Mm -hmm. either physically or emotionally, albeit in just a moment in time, Mm -hmm. that anxiety rising up of you're not here for me and Mm -hmm. you're going to leave me. So I would love just to hear your perspective on how those experiences uh, sort of inform our tolerance for pain or abandonment or feelings of lack. Mm
1: -hmm. I think we place a a lot of responsibility on our other or on our partner, right? To fulfill a lot of voids in us, Um, some of which really should be filled by ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Or or, um, getting to a place of healing so that um, those things don't come up for us. But I think part of it is around communication. Mm -hmm. Right. So understanding your communication style um, between one another, understanding, you know, when you are feeling a particular way. Right. And we're talking about folks who can actually identify that and have that conversation. Right. So I want to be clear about that as well. Um, But, um, you know, talking to your partner and saying, you know, when this happens, I feel X Mm -hmm. or, you know, when when you do this, this is what I'm thinking or this is what it reminds me of to help folks unpack that. Right. And then for the the other person being intentional about what your your own behavior, you know, when you're doing something, how does that impact my partner? Um and sometimes we do it intentionally, right? Mm-hmm. Because we know it's gonna harm the other person. Um and so and, and again thinking about our own, you know, relational patterns, right? And reminding ourselves that, you know, as children, you know, growing up, we we had very particular experiences that we continue to play out in our in our adult relationships. So again, just being cognizant of those things and how they play out and then being intentional about moving forward and moving past those things that that we sort of, you know, sort of go to our safety places when those feelings for us come up.
0: And within the context of that same conversation, I think I feel I'm going to speak for me Mm -hmm. that when I talk to my female friends, they're reading the books like they're working really hard Mm -hmm. to try to bridge that communication gap. One of the struggles that they feel that they have is that, you know, my partner is not doing the same Mm -hmm. and, Also, taking it a step further, is completely shutting down. Mm -hmm. The moment that they are in pain or they are upset, Mm -hmm. and it may not even have anything to do with the woman that they're with, Mm -hmm. if we're just talking about, you know, uh, male-female relationships um, in this context, but it may not even have anything to do with her. But life circumstances uh, have caused them to sort of go into Mm -hmm. a a shell uh, and not really explain this is what's going on Mm -hmm. or this is what I'm feeling and Mm -hmm. you're adding to my pressure Mm -hmm. here or you're not supporting me enough What's the starting point? Because every man's not gonna say, I don't have a, I have an inability to communicate. Let me go talk to someone about right. that. So if someone is in a relationship with mm-hmm. that dynamic, you know, where maybe the woman wants to start to have the conversations, but he's not opening up, mm-hmm. how do you break down that role or start to at least mm-hmm. chisel away at it? Yeah. Um that's challenging, right? Because mm-hmm. every
1: every relationship or you know, romantic um relationship is a little bit different. Yes. Um so you have to know your partner, right? So that's That's part one. What is going to what is going to be helpful? What is going to help them get to that space of, you know, starting to open up? Um, But I would say work on yourself, Mm -hmm. right, because you can't make the other person, you can't force the other person to be ready. Um, So you can only do what you need to do for yourself. Um, You can you can start the conversation. You can provide an invitation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say, you know, get started on your own work first. Um, And if things don't change, then we have some other questions to ask ourselves. Right. Like if we're going to continue to be in this space with a person um, where I don't feel like it's moving forward or it's getting better, it's getting to a healthier place. And so those are some of the some of the other harder conversations that Mm -hmm. I don't think folks are ready to necessarily get into. But I would say start with yourself um because that is you know that is where the real work begins. Mm-hmm.
0: For sure. Um so speaking to now the the men who are saying I do need to talk to someone mm-hmm. oftentimes that statement is followed up with, but I need them to look like me. Mm-hmm. You know, and we all know that it is very difficult to find a black therapist mm-hmm. who is equipped, who's mm-hmm. good, and who has, you know, space available mm-hmm. um, to be able to take on new clients So mm-hmm. are there resources that you can offer or just tips on starting that process if you even think it's necessary or crucial. I'm a proponent of, you know, I've, I've done both mm-hmm. and I'll never forget first, you know, therapist I had who was great, you know, mm-hmm. said to me when our time came to an end, if at another point in your life you decide to go to therapy, I think you should go to a black therapist mm-hmm. because he or she is going to be able to connect with you and identify mm-hmm. things um, or understand them in the way that I simply cannot mm-hmm. as a, a clinician, mm-hmm. which makes. Me respect her mm. even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so when I found the next therapist years later, um, who was equally as good, but there was a different understanding mm-hmm. because, you know, she did look like me. Mm-hmm. So I do place value on that. I don't think it's the only, you know, the only way. Sure. Um, but do you think so? Let me reframe the question. Do you think, A, it's important mm-hmm. to have someone, you know, go to a person of color, particularly for Black men? And if so, if that's what they're looking for, how do they go about finding someone? Because it can feel like a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm.
1: So part of therapy, right, is mm-hmm. providing an emotionally corrective experience, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the goal of therapy. Um, and while there are a ton of Black clinicians um, or clinicians of color, um, you may not always have that available to you for yes. various reasons, right? whether it's cost, whether it's time or whether it's availability. So I would say first and foremost, um, if that is important to you, going to a person of color um, or going to someone who looks like you, then you have to necessarily, you definitely have to do your research. And there are tons of um, resources that are out in the community. Um, so I myself provide a whole list of clinicians of color mm-hmm. to folks who ask. Um, you can also find a list of clinicians of color on uh, Therapy for Black Girls. So mm-hmm. shout out to Dr. Joy. Um, so she has cultivated a list of Um, in many states um, that you can find on her website. Um, There's also Melanated Mental Health. Um, I have a friend who's out in North Carolina who just started an app called Attune. So there are plenty of places for folks to find um, clinicians of color, right? Um, But you also want to think about the cost. So there are some therapists who will take insurance, some who will not. Um, There, you know, you can also find therapists who will um, charge a sliding scale fee. Um, But most importantly, I would say, you know, you know, start your search. Um, And if you can't find a clinician of color, you know, don't delay the process Mm -hmm. because you can't find a clinician of color. Um, It's important. And many clinicians can help you get get what you need. Um, And I would also say that, you know, finding a therapist or finding a good fit is like finding a good pair of shoes. Right. You may have to try on one or two before you find the one that feels like it's a good fit. Um, So don't get discouraged early on in that process if you're not finding what it is that you're looking for. But again, there are so many resources that are available um, for you to go ahead and start.
0: And in a nutshell, what would you say a good relationship with a the therapist looks like.
1: Uh, one that you feel respected, mm-hmm. right? That you feel understood. Um you know, part of it is that you feel comfortable. Some there will be many uncomfortable moments in therapy, right? Because you're you're unpacking some of the things that don't necessarily yes. feel good emotionally, right? Um but you want to have you want to at least feel um heard and validated in that space. Um so I would say those are some of the things that would feel, you know, should feel good or should feel important. Um and you should feel some relief, mm-hmm. you know, going going to your therapist and you've, you've you've had experiences as well right so i would encourage those of us who have had who have had therapy um to share your experiences um and what made you stay and if you didn't stay what were those things that prompted you to
0: move on to mm-hmm. a new plan? and i wish more people would be open about that the, the people <laughs> who we've had on the show 99% of them who mm-hmm. have therapists have mentioned it on the show like yeah. just very open about it and i do think that um, the shroud, you know, of like secrecy is being lifted in a sense. Mm-hmm. But I can remember being in therapy for the first time in 2006 mm-hmm. and I was in law school at the time and we were all milling about like mm-hmm. outside of a classroom. And one of my good friends said, hey, you, you want to grab a cup of coffee? And I said, no, I have an appointment with my therapist. Mm-hmm. She was like, Shh, like, <laughs> don't say that out loud. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, why? Right. You know, because it's just the idea that, if you are a broken human being, mm-hmm. if, if you go see a therapist mm-hmm. or you're, quote, crazy, and I mm-hmm. hate that term. Yeah. But, you know, there's there's something seriously wrong. Yeah. Um, if you see a therapist and even if there is something seriously That's wrong, right. you are working to correct that Absolutely. and work through it. Um, So it's, it's one of the things about the show that I am really proud of that we talk mm-hmm. about it a lot. It's become like its own running theme, Love it. Um, which we, we think is great. But um, I'm glad that you mentioned that there will be times, especially in the Beginning where it feels uncomfortable mm-hmm. because I think for me, I was not prepared for that. Yeah. And you know, you have this conversation, and someone is helping you to reopen wounds that you may have worked very hard to yeah. ignore or quote forget. Yeah. And then you start to unpack that, and you, the, the pain that bubbles up mm-hmm. often, or the anger, or the bitterness, or whatever's mm-hmm. there that doesn't really feel good. And then someone says, Well, that's our time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. so and you have to walk out and sit with that mm-hmm. and, and figure out how to cope until mm-hmm. the next session. So yeah. one of the things that I've tried to be open about with people in my life who started therapy, who mm-hmm. are having that experience mm-hmm. and then calling me like I want to I'm ready to go to crawl up in the fetal position, right. um, you know, explaining to them that it, it gets it, it may get worse before yeah, it gets better. Definitely. But, you know, I, I equate it to you. Um, in the beginning, it's like the suitcase is closed mm-hmm. and then you open it and everything's just exposed. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all your luggage is open, yes. the clothes and everything's thrown about. And now we're working to pull them out and yeah. figure out what needs to be thrown away, yeah. what needs to be washed oh, and how to fold it up. So yeah. um, that's how I and that is a process yeah. um, as well. So I uh, I, I, am really in awe and proud of the work that you do I because I know that it, it can't be easy um, and you're juggling a lot and working for really for the uplift of the community yeah. because the the outgrowth of this the output is that healthier human beings yeah. who then make healthier partners who then make healthier parents um, so there's a ripple effect that really goes beyond work as a practitioner mm-hmm. this is creating legacy yeah, and you know changing the trajectory mm-hmm. and which is amazing to me and not only do you do all those things Things, you are also a lactation consultant. Ah, yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. <laughs> All
1: right. <laughs> um, so, really quickly, mm-hmm. I'm a lactation consultant, really is focused on breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I sort of got into that work um, doing some of the maternal child health work and working with moms during pregnancy mm-hmm. around mental health um, during the perinatal period. And so, what we found was that we also wanted to help moms, encourage moms to breastfeed, um, particularly in communities of color, because the breastfeeding rates were so low. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to increase that. Um, I found that helping moms to breastfeed also was actually helping them to to have a really wonderful and beautiful attachment or the beginning of 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 a wonderful attachment um, with their baby, which technically we want to start in pregnancy. um, Right. But that also contributes to having a having a healthy baby, having a healthy mind Mm -hmm. um, and having a healthy body and making sure that, you know, the babies are strong because breast milk is best. Right. So that was sort of um, how I sort of got introduced to that and adding that to my practice.
0: So speaking little bit about motherhood we've spent all this time talking mm-hmm. about you know your core focal area I'll call it that fatherhood but one of the things that um I also see becoming a topic topic of conversation with more so with black women now mm-hmm. than ever before who are in a certain age bracket is considering single motherhood by choice mm-hmm. and the conversations that I'm hearing is I have the resources mm-hmm. I have the love to give but I grew up without a father mm-hmm. and I don't want to put somebody else in that situation? How do I explain to my child? I don't know who your father is Mm -hmm. because I chose a donor or I know, Mm -hmm. but this is a legal relationship that we we have. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, that is a legitimate concern? And how can it be overcome if somebody makes the the conscious decision Mm -hmm. to be a single parent? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So I have a lot of folks who are consciously choosing Mm -hmm. um, single motherhood. Um, And I will say that that I know that there are a lot of challenges, right, Um, growing up in a father absent home, um, right, just, you know, socially, emotionally. um, But what's most important, I think, is that children grow up in a home full of love and support um, where they can do well and thrive, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And if someone has a desire to, to, to mother or to parents. Um, I wholeheartedly encourage that. Um, and again, it's, a, it's a difficult choice that you have to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually fully support it. I think that, um, you know, as you approach that over 35 period, yes. there are some real concerns that you have to think about. Um, and if you don't have a partner who wants to parent with parent with you or alongside you, um, and you want to make that decision, then, then I encourage folks to do that. Um, but knowing that, um, you will need to, a lot of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I, tell folks um, is that, you know, think about who that father figure can be. So whether it's a brother or an uncle or a mentor, um, and certainly if there is um, not a romantic relationship, but you do have an agreement of some sort with the father, you know, you want to think about how you can make sure that that person is included um, in, in family life.
0: So do, do you think, and I'm sort of asking for myself too, because mm-hmm. I'm in that over 35 mm-hmm. bracket. Um, do you think that, that father figure that stands in but is not present 100% of the time is an adequate replacement.
1: So, no, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to say that very pointedly. Um they aren't an added replacement, but what we do know is that children can still thrive with okay. that, right? So, going back to the earlier statement that I made about um you know, one in four children live in father absent homes, right? But we don't talk about that number not inclusive of co-parenting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So it could sound a little scary and like, you know, wow, there's like, you know, a crisis happening here. Um, But the the bottom line is that children need love and support and they can get it from an array of folks. Um, And so as long as that, I think, is um, at the core, um, then I think you will be able to raise some really wonderful and beautiful and healthy children.
0: Awesome. So shifting gears, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, I
1: would like to say that, um, that feels like I have to do that often. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but I would, I would say that, um, most often I'm in, I'm usually in a lot of spaces where I'm the only woman, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in, in the, in the space of fatherhood. Um, and I think it takes tremendous strength to just remind yourself who you are and remind yourself that you belong there and that you were, um, created for such a time of this as this. So I think um, being confident about the skills that you possess, being confident about um, you know who you are and your calling and what you can provide, and you know just being willing to stand up in a space even when people don't believe that you belong there.
0: Absolutely. So what's on the horizon for Dr. Lena Green? Oh
1: wow, I can't tell you all my secrets. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, certainly, I'm going to be you know continuing my teaching career um, um, and looking for other places is to expand, um, my role in academia. Um, so I'm looking to, um, have some variety in where I'll be teaching. So not just NYU, but in other spaces as well. Um, hopefully in New York City, but if that takes me outside of New Mm -hmm. York City, then I'm open to that as well. Um, working on some additional projects, um, that focus on actually co-parenting.
0: Okay.
1: Um, that is a huge, I think, issue and a huge hole, I think, in the research in itself, in and of itself. Um, and then also, you know, practically what we need, um, as we continue to work with parents, um, I'll be working with uh, the Office of Child Support, moderating their upcoming um, child support conference, which will be in October. Um, a registration, will, I think, will be open in, I think, August mm-hmm. of this year. Um, so those are the three things that I would say are that I'm sort of focused
0: on right now. And where can people learn more about you or the Akira Center online?
1: Um, so you can go to com or .org. It'll come up. Um, and then I can I would say you can follow me on at Dr. Lena Green on Instagram.
0: Got it. And let's just spell it Akira for the folks who may be wondering.
1: Sure. it's <laughs> A-K-I-R-A.
0: Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Same I hope you have here. as well. I knew you were going to be a good one, though, based <laughs> on our, our preliminary conversation. And there's just I mean, of course, I love black girl magic, but. There is nothing like someone knowing their stuff in the area that they own and um, and having done the work, having done the work uh, to to really be able to offer substantive knowledge and, and help because that is what it takes. I love the feel-good stuff. I mean, we're we're an emotional, you know, motivational show as well. Yeah. But you got to go deeper than that. If you want to lead, lead a healthy life, especially if you have experienced trauma or some sort of loss, and yeah. who of us has not, Yeah, it's important to have that element with someone, you mm-hmm. know, who is trained in really, really unpacking that. So we, our goal is to offer tidbits, but really put, force people and, and motivate them. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't use the word force, but we do kind of force. We're always like go to therapy, but force people to <laughs> yes. explore that and, yes. and say, you know what? It's time for me to live as my best self. And yes. part of that is really taking an honest look at what I've experienced yes. and the result of that and how I approach the world. So thank you for coming on and sharing a little bit of your expertise. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me. This has this has been delightful and I'm so grateful for the opportunity.
0: Awesome. And we'll be in touch, of okay. course, as we continue with our uh, December 26th of brand and what's on the horizon for us. So absolutely. To our listeners, make sure you go check out Dr. Lena Green online. For those who are local to New York and may want to actually receive services or volunteer in any way, please check out the Akira Center. And if you want to support... Uh, be it. I'm sure you do take monetary donations. We do. So, yes, if you want to support the cause and help further this journey, um, please look into that. We, we encourage philanthropy here on this show as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovol. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December26er. That's December26ER.